0: Well, a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, Jesus's first encounter with some men that would eventually become his disciples. And you may remember when he first met Andrew's brother, Simon, how he introduced himself by changing his name. (laughs) He says, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be Peter, which we know means the rock. It's as if he was saying, I know who you are, but this is who you will become. This morning, we're going to fast forward to see how those prophetic words are ultimately fulfilled in the life of Peter. He's been transformed, as we will see, by following Jesus Christ. As we do that, I kind of want to set the stage for this conversation that will take place. Peter and the other disciples have been following Jesus for almost three years now. This is somewhere around the winter before the spring when Jesus will be unjustly tried and ultimately crucified. They've had time to witness his miracles. They've listened to his parables. They've seen how he's interacted with the religious leaders. And and so they are taking all this in as they try to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. Now, most of Jesus's ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee. Now, this would have been familiar territory for Peter because The headquarters for Jesus, where he spent most of his time, is there at the north of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. That's Peter's hometown. Um, And so that's where they kind of base themselves out of. Well, they just spent time with a multitude of people, and now they're going to travel about 30 miles to the north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is an interesting place. It is the farthest north that Jesus ever traveled during his ministry. And just outside of Caesarea Philippi is a large, what ultimately became kind of like a worship center. It was a popular place because it was the, the place of a huge spring that forms a beautiful river. All this water is from a spring. It, it, historians say that that spring once came out of a cave set back in the back of this cliff. In ancient times, it was called the Cave Of Pan. In Greek mythology, Pan is the god of the wild. And so the cave of Pan was in his honor. He was supposed to be the guardian of the gates of hell. He was the god of fear, which is why we get our word panic, overcome by fear, Pan. So it was in this setting that Jesus enters into a conversation with his disciples and and in this setting there is along this cliff these little insets where people would place idols, multitudes of idols. It was a huge kind of worship center. In fact, this is kind of an artist's depiction of what that might have looked like during the time of Christ. And, And this is where the conversation takes place between jesus and his disciples and i hope in hearing this background it gives you a a whole new perspective on what now takes place with uh, jesus and his disciples before we look at that together let's go to the lord in prayer god as we open your word we want to do so humbly we want to ask that you speak truth to our hearts We recognize that there are distractions in our life, things that occupy our minds, our attention. But we want to pray together this morning that you would have all of our attention, that you would have all of our heart, and that you would speak truth into our lives in ways that, like Peter, would transform us, helping us to become the one that you've created us to be. Father, would you have your way? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So turn to Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 13, as we look at this conversation that Jesus and his disciples had there in Caesarea Philippi. So if you want to begin reading with me in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. I'm going to base this out of Matthew, but I'll bring in other things as they seem fitting. So Jesus is asking a real simple question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? What is the consensus of the multitude? Well, the disciples respond by saying, well... There's really not a consensus. I mean, some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say a prophet, maybe like Jeremiah or someone like that. As you consider those options, I think uh, Elijah may be the easiest to understand from a Jewish perspective. Because Elijah didn't die in the typical fashion. He wasn't placed in a grave or in a tomb. What we learn from Scripture is that Elijah was taking up into heaven uh, like a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. So it was a common belief among the Jewish people that Elijah would return, and his role would be to announce the coming of the Messiah. In fact, to this day, when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they leave a chair empty at the table for Elijah. It's like an invitation for him to come and announce the Messiah. So that would make sense to me that they could possibly see how Jesus was Elijah uh, coming to announce the Messiah. Uh, The other one is John the Baptist. It's a little harder because by the time this conversation has taken place, John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod. And so some think that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. And I think this may be in some ways tied to Elijah as well. Because in Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecy made of Elijah. That it wasn't Elijah who was returning, but instead John the Baptist would fulfill the role of Elijah and announce the coming of the Messiah. And so perhaps some thought that Maybe Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, again in that role of Elijah announcing the coming of the Messiah. But whether it was Elijah or John the Baptist, risen from the dead, or some other prophet, what I want you to see is that they were all connected in some way to the coming of the Messiah. People believed that Jesus was unique That there was something special about him. And really, if you think about it, that opinion still exists to this day. If you look at the religion of Islam, they think very highly of Jesus. In fact, he is the most mentioned name in the Quran. He is the most important prophet superseded only by Muhammad himself. They believe that Jesus will return one day and lead an army against the Antichrist. Jesus is really important within their religious system. If you look at Mormonism, Mormons believe that Jesus was the spirit child, the offspring of, of God and Mary. A God, but not the God. Special, important, set apart. If you look at Hinduism, they would recognize Jesus as one of many gods, in whose teaching you should follow. It was good teaching. The Buddhists would say the exact same thing. My point is this. If Jesus were to ask that same question today that he asked of his disciples back then, he would get a very similar answer. Jesus is a real person with divine attributes, important life lessons. Most people, even today, Admire the life of Jesus Christ. They look at his ministry as something that was unique and set apart. They admire him. But that's as far as it goes. Look at how the conversation continues in verse 15. And so he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ The son of the living God. Now, don't forget the setting, the backdrop of this conversation. They're in this pagan worship center. They're surrounded by people worshiping all variety of gods. They've just had a conversation about all the various opinions of who Jesus might be. And so then Jesus, after hearing all of that, says, but who do you say that I am? Out of all these options, what do you believe? You see, in the end, it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about Jesus. In the end, the only thing that matters is what you think about Jesus. Judgment is based on your opinion, not the popular opinion. Who do you say that I am? That's the question Jesus asks. And he's asking it because he knows we have to make our faith our own. Peter's response is important because it is not consistent with the popular opinion. It did not line up with the cultural perspective of his day. Where most people were content to admire Jesus from a distance... Peter was willing to come in close and adore him by following him. Peter confesses that Jesus didn't come to announce the Messiah. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He's not just a man to be admired. Peter says, You are the Son of the living God. In other words, Jesus, you come with divine authority. You're anointed with divine power. You fulfill a divine promise. You have accomplished a divine mission. Peter is putting Jesus in a category all his own. While everyone else admires Jesus, Peter adores him as the one and the only one who will bring deliverance. And notice how Jesus responds to this in verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not overcome. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever shall be loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he is the Christ. Blessed are you, Simon Barona, Barjona. It's it's the same thing as saying son of John. This recalls the conversation they had when they first met when Jesus said, Simon, son of John. You will be Peter, the rock. And here is where that promise is fulfilled. Jesus, son of the living God, addresses Simon, son of John. And he affirms the confession as one of divine origin. In other words, Peter, you didn't come up with this based on human understanding. In fact, that was the basis of all the other opinions, And they were all wrong. But Peter, you know who I am because you listened to what God had to say. Jesus confirms Peter's confession. And even though his understanding is incomplete, as we will soon see, he affirms the confession that Peter makes. In fact, that confession becomes the cornerstone of the church. This is the very first time in which Jesus actually uses this Greek word, or Aramaic word at that time, Ecclesia. It means church. It's the, the fellowship of believers, those who come together, believing in that common confession that Peter has just made on behalf of the disciples. The church is built on Peter the Rock's confession not only that, Peter's confession and that belief shared by all of his disciples is the key to eternal life. Our faith in Christ are literally the keys to the kingdom. It's our entrance into heaven. Our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, here's the reality. One day, Jesus will ask us the very same question he just asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And our answer will determine our eternal destiny. See, Peter's answer becomes the divine standard by which all mankind will be judged. But then, surprisingly, after such a profound confession, Jesus says, you're right, but don't tell anyone. Why would he say that? I think he says that because he didn't want them proclaiming something they didn't fully understand. Because the disciples are still thinking in nationalistic terms. The Savior who would come for the Jews. They had no concept of the scope of what Jesus would accomplish for the world. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And until they understood that, he wanted them to still learn more. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders, and then be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus goes on to explain the part that they didn't fully understand. For the first time, he gives a most unanticipated description of upcoming events. He unequivocally affirms Peter's confession. He is the promised Messiah. He will bring deliverance. But that deliverance will be through his death. A sacrifice sufficient not just for the Jews, but for all the world. So that whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. This idea of sacrifice was so offensive to to Paul, he steps in and says, no, 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 not on my watch you won't die. We won't let that happen, will we guys? We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus responds, what you just said is from Satan, and here's why. He's the only one who wants to stand in the way of God's plan of salvation, and you've just taken his side. When you stand against the cross, you stand against me. Peter the Rock has become a stumbling block. Because unlike his confession of the Messiah, a confession inspired by the Spirit of God, he now says, Peter, you're relying on the wisdom of man. You want salvation to work out in terms that make sense to you. You're depending on human understanding. You see, I think Peter's a lot like us. He wants to customize his design of what a Savior should be. But Jesus is clear. He can only be a Savior by sacrificing his life, and we can only be a disciple by losing our life. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Man, if we're honest with ourselves and we stop and think about what Jesus just said, this goes against every grain of fabric in our being and our society and the world that surrounds us even to this day. Instead of losing our life, our culture teaches us to go and find yourself, to live in the freedom of whoever you want to be. Live out your true identity. In fact, you, you may not believe this. I have checked it out, and I know it's true. Did you know that Facebook has over 50 different gender identities that you can choose from? 50. I don't even, I can't get my head around that. I don't know how that's possible. I went on there. You've got male, female, and then custom. And if you go in and custom, you can just type in trans and you're going to get at least 15 options there. Type in "buy," you're going to get at least 15 options there. By the time you're done, there are over 50 possible options. The Bible teaches that we don't discover our true identity by finding ourselves. We find our identity by dying to ourselves. Our enemy wants to keep us lost by constantly causing us to search. Jesus wants us to find our answer in our relationship with him. He wants us to discover who he created us to be. (laughs) Wouldn't he know best? The one who created us. Discipleship is discovering our identity in Christ. You see, much of the world is content to admire Jesus from a distance. To be respectful, but not worshipful. To acknowledge, but not adore. And and by all accounts, it seems like many people are doing just fine. In fact, in some cases, better than we are. So what's the difference? Life seems pretty good. But what does it profit to gain all that the world has to offer and then lose your own soul? Being a Christian is the is the belief that God has so much more than anything this world has to offer. He made you. He loves you. And he wants you to become Everything he's created you to be. Following him is how we find what our heart longs for most. Just ask Peter, who increasingly over time understood and lived out of the identity of who God made him to be. See, our identity is not something that we discover. It is something that we receive when we walk in fellowship with our Savior. And so let me encourage you as we think about the 4th of July and we think about freedom to go back again to what we talked about in communion and to realize that we have been set free from searching when we find hope and forgiveness and grace and mercy in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let him rule and reign on the throne of your life. And I know it sounds antithetical. It sounds the opposite of what we hear in the world every single day. But freedom is a decision of trust. And you're going to decide to trust in either that opinion or the Bible's truth. It's your choice. But you've got to make that choice. And very often we make the choice every single day. Because like we talked about, it's so easy to know that we are free in Christ and yet still live as a slave. Slave to fear, worry, anxiety, people's expectations, opinions. And God says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And you will only experience what your heart desires most when you put your trust in me. It's your choice. Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We want to really recognize how easy it is to get distracted in a world that has a million voices telling us things that don't line up with what you so quietly spoke through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, help us to see because of your spirit's work in our hearts this morning, how important it is to keep standing firm so that we are not subject to the yoke of slavery that has been broken by faith in Jesus Christ. That we would live in the freedom of experiencing joy, contentment in every circumstance. That we wouldn't be burdened by fears and anxieties, but instead we would do as your word tells us, to cast our anxieties upon you Because you care for us. I just pray that in some small way, we can leave this morning with a greater conviction of that truth. Help us to trust in you day by day, moment by moment, and find that you are faithful. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Have a great week.